just before I give the talk, I wonder if we could spend just a few minutes um, meditating. So it's bringing yourself fully into the present moment. <coughs> straighten and straighten your body. Try to relax in this upright way. And just follow your breathing as best you can, whatever makes you aware of your breathing. So be aware of that. If this is something that you use, use as breathing as, uh, as like a life belt on the sea. It's not something you have to struggle over or get perfectly right, but just use it as something you can rest on. It's a natural experience breathing in and out. <coughs> When you, breathe, when you breathe out, try to, as you breathe out, just relax any sense of tension or stress or tightness in your body. And as you breathe in, get the feeling of refreshing, lifting yourself, opening yourself up. So you use it as a, as a massage for your body and your mind. As you find that sense of an inner balance, allow yourself to experience the sounds, people coming and going, things going on around you, without feeling you've got to kind of defend yourself or shut it out. Just let it float through. So it's rather like using this central breath as something that helps you ride the waves of experience. As we sit here, also just finding the time to consider a little bit, reflect a little on today. (coughs) What is happening today, the sense of all these hundreds of people coming to make offerings, to listen to Dhamma, to be present, with no intention to hurt or harm take anything away, abuse anybody, so it's a place where we can feel trust and something rather generous and cooperative happening. This is the spirit of Katina. And this is just one Katina in one monastery. This is happening 
this month through thousands of monasteries. It's been happening for thousands of years. So try to feel that sense of the whole wave of cooperation and generosity and harmlessness that moves through time. Following the Buddha, following the enlightened ones, this wave of human goodness. This is the sea in which we're floating now. Thank you. I'll take leave to give a talk now. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma Sambuddhasa Uddang Dhammang Sangang Namasami. <coughs> so, start with one of the, the very short scripture, short teaching the Buddha gave at one time to the monks about friends. <coughs> A friend, O monk, should be followed when he possesses seven factors. What seven? He gives what is difficult to give. He does what is difficult to do. <clears throat> Patiently endures what is difficult to endure. Reveals one's own secrets. Keeps your secrets. Doesn't abandon you in misfortune. And doesn't despise you when you're in a state of loss. A friend should be followed when he possesses these seven factors. Gives what's difficult to give, does what's difficult to do, endures what it's difficult to endure, reveals one's own, your own, his own heart, his own secrets, keeps, your, keeps confidence, keeps your secrets, doesn't abandon you in misfortune and doesn't despise you when you're, when you're ruined when you're abandoned. A friend should be followed when he possesses these seven factors. Mm. So I I chose this because it's simple, it's also deep, and it's pertinent to what what this occasion is about, what is, if you like, the, the wave on which teaching of the Buddha rides and what it inspires, it inspires noble friendship. It's supported by noble friendship. The teaching, of course, is timeless, but for it to be revealed and manifest in this world requires friendship, requires cooperation 
<coughs> for it to be revealed in this world it means um, there has to be people who are prepared to listen, who are prepared to trust, who are prepared to train themselves. Uh, because to uh, and certainly for the monastic tradition it means one thing is absolutely certain, is absolutely necessary, is presence of lay people who can provide the requisites for requisites. So it's this kind of sense of cooperation. We like to the Sangha, monks and nuns like to feel that we're essential for your well-being. That's a matter of opinion. <laughs> but it's certainly the case that you're essential for our well-being. <laughs> And because this is all voluntary, you know, and really voluntary, you know, what voluntary means means something to do with your will. It's a free will. There's no coercion. There's no promises. There's no favors done in, you know, in in ways that corrupt. There's no biases. There's no in-groups. You know, we there's no secret deals. There's no blaming. Goes on. You know, it's all voluntary. This is what supports these places, and I think it's that which, really, we understand it makes us feel the, the sense of the love and the trust that's involved. Such a precious thing, because it's really saying, well. Do what you will, what you really would like to put, put your heart into, what you really feel, the offering that you really would like to make just for the sake of one moment, for that one moment, I made my offering. I didn't have to, I just made it because I wanted to. And that moment, you know, there's something very grand and large and noble about a human being. And that moment must never be um, despised, looked down upon, or coerced. It has to be that moment of true beauty. Mm. This is very much what we encourage uh, in this Dhamma and discipline. Mm. And of course, there are many kinds of offerings. There are offerings, financial, offerings of service, offerings of help, offerings of advice, offerings of teachings, offerings of various things and I guess it all comes down to offering a little bit of oneself that's what we all do offering a little bit of what I have and uh, this means you offer it you can only really offer that from a place of friendliness you can't offer yourself to someone you're not a friend to really you can you know, it doesn't doesn't work. It doesn't happen. And the beauty of it is that we we do feel we can make a little offering from ourselves. Then we both trust the friend. We feel we have a friend. We feel we befriend others, and we feel for that one moment or that time at least there has been that sense of intimacy, connection, that makes us feel a bit we're not alone. We're not shut in. We've reached somebody else. We've reached another person. 
And that's something, you know, when, you, when that happens, you know what it feels like. You, know, you can't really explain, you know what it feels like. It feels like this is, I've, I'm here, you know, I'm actually on the planet. I'm not just floating around in outer space. I'm in somebody else's life. I'm affecting that, you know. And it's been, it's been done purely. It's been done with no force and no push and no abuse, and no stealing anything. You know. This is um, certainly one of the uh, lovely experience to be in, which we all need. Everybody needs a friend. We just think, uh, you know, what what the often the wrong view that we get into is: well, I want to be someone who doesn't need anybody, you know, be on my own, be able to look after myself. Thank you very much. I am okay. I'm strong enough, I'm resilient enough, I'm tough enough to look after myself, I'm fully grown and so forth. You know. Mm-hmm. You know. And you know, what, this is the kind of thing that can be encouraged in a way. You know. <coughs> Probably, it's a kind of, you know, it's, it's, in a stereotype way, it's a, it's a kind of what we might call a masculine attitude, though it's something not only men have, but it's that kind of you know, this attitude where you're sort of tough and impermeable and you can get along. And it's a kind of hero thing that's very much uh, an icon of, of this civilization. And yet we see how the result of that can be you know, just people ricocheting off each other. You know, I don't need you, you don't need me, get out of my way, I'm all right. You know, it's just like billiard balls clashing around, you know, just ricochets off each other. Mm-hmm. And it's not only, um, it's also not, it's not true. You know, it can be hurtful, it can be very lonely, it can be very proud. It's also just plainly not true, <laughs> you know because there's not a single living system on this planet that doesn't need something outside itself. Not a single thing from an algae to a, a microbe needs somebody else, something else to get it, keep it going. Yeah. And we, as human beings, we're no different from that. You know, every breath we share, we're sharing the same air. You know, this whole planet, we're sucking in somebody else's breath every moment, <laughs> putting it out again. We're sucking in the air from the trees. The trees give, putting it out, drinking in the water from the heavens and the skies and the rivers. And certainly in terms of our hearts and minds, we're awash with the perceptions and memories and attitudes and good and kind behavior and unpleasant behavior of other beings. You know, it's all just washing through the things that happen to us and the things that are happening to us are certainly not mine. You know, they are because we're in this pond together, you know, and, and stuff is happening because of being here with other human beings. Yeah. And you can't, you can't seal it off. So, you know, what's the only true possibility is to understand what Buddha called dependent arising. Everything affects everything else. There's interdependency. And this means there has to be cooperation. You know, because we have to cooperate. We cannot possibly operate on our own. We have to cooperate. And this means friendship, doesn't it? 
And friendship's not just the, some kind of, it's not a sentimental thing. You know? If you look at the way the Buddha described it, that's not just friend is someone who's got nice blue eyes. A friend is someone who's, who gives you a birthday card. A friend is someone who, who gives what's difficult to give. <laughs> Does what's difficult to do. Yeah. Bears what's difficult to bear. It's, it's a certain, you know, there's a certain resilience that's required in relationship, a certain ability to be, to be strong enough and to be giving enough and to give from oneself. That's required. It's not just a good time experience. Mm. And uh, so that, you know, one actually does require some training to get up the strength as well as the understanding to be able to do that. Sometimes it's difficult to bear your mm. own stuff, bear with your own heart and mind, let alone bear somebody else's. So it requires that kind of meditation and introspection and feeling what's happening and being able to be with the sorrows and the joys and the disappointments and the frustrations that occur in life. And you can, you can, you, you're not shutting out, but you can contemplate it. You can open up to it. You can let it arise. You can bear, you can be with it. You don't have to understand it even. You can actually be with that. And it, it strengthens you. I think it was Nietzsche, Friedrich Nietzsche, the philosopher, said, that which doesn't kill me strengthens me. And uh, <laughs> this is not just a theory. You know, uh, certainly I, you know, I, I don't think I had a particularly difficult life, really, but I, uh, uh, I understand that quite deeply. <laughs> not because it's been physically difficult, but it's certainly been psychologically and emotionally very taxing, you know, to, to both to to be in, in this particular form because what cooperation means is not just let's be nice to each other it means that my will my interest my wish what I want to do is going to be checked by what somebody else wants to do it's not all going to go my way it's not you're going to, not going to be the way I want you to be you're not going to be do the things I want you to do you're going to say the things I don't want to hear at the wrong time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're not little photographs on my screensaver, you know, that <laughs> blip that come up all smiley. You know, you get upset and angry and worried and depressed and all that. Well, I don't want you to be. Yeah. So, you know, you realize that in a cooperative thing, it's something that checks one's own willpower, one's own willfulness one's own sense of this is what I want, you know. And they say this is what you begin to learn. They call it the, I think mothers call it the terrible twos. You know, that's when it starts, but it doesn't finish at the age of three. <laughs> <laughs> terrible twos goes on the rest of your, my, my life I've been terrible too. But you just learn to put a few other, you get more subtle with it. You know, don't throw the tantrums anymore, but there's still that sense of what I want, you know, that kind of push. And you learn how to moderate it and, okay, put up, right, fair enough, can't get it. But so much of life is, to my mind, is just really learning to understand this, this drive, this will, this what I want, what I need, what, I, what I can I have, uh, and so on. And how that meets the environment 
the other people, the context around me, which isn't set up to fulfill my, my wishes and needs. So there's an edge there, there's a meeting place there. And when it gets frustrated, what happens? I get angry. You know? I don't see this as just some kind of personal foible. But you know, everything from a termite upwards gets brassed off when it doesn't get what it wants. We <laughs> 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 oh, like that, you know. And if we're socialized human beings, we go, well, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> But some things, I didn't, I didn't want that to happen. I feel irritated by that. And, you know, okay, you just... You know. Or, if that doesn't happen, you, you get sad. Oh, no, no, no. me. get sad, don't you? Give it a grief comes up. You know. Or, you know, so these are the kind of common things that happen for people when our will gets frustrated. And if it goes a long time, you get, then you start also get anxious. You get fear. Over, well, will I be able to? What can I? What will happen to me? You know, where you no longer feel that what you want and what you have and what you can do is going to be met. You're going to do something, and maybe you won't be able to do it. So again, it's a sense of your your will to be is something that's continually being checked, scrutinized, looked at you know, challenged by the environment. It doesn't always do that. I mean, sometimes things just do flow along and you get the miracles and the joys and the loves and the, and the free gifts, which is great. You know, that, that does happen. And most beautifully, when you didn't will it, you know, when it just happened, when you kind of manipulated, cajoled, cajoled dropped the hint, put a bit of pressure on and got what you want, it doesn't quite feel as nice as when it just kind of landed, you know, in a in a in an unsolicited way, as they say about this katina cloth wafted on a breeze. So, so this is certainly a beautiful thing that one recognises in this Dharma and discipline. How many beautiful things do waft in on the breeze, but it still means that. Um, Sometimes the wind blows the other way, doesn't it, for all of us? And then, it, you know, you still get that sense of, mm, 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 goes on. Now, so a friend is someone who can, who knows this, you know, who knows this about you, knows it about themselves, they know this. They give what's difficult to give. They give a little bit of their patience, their space, their understanding, their companionship in the struggle. They maybe give some advice on how to, how to bear with that, how to be with that. They do what's difficult to do, which means you meet, you're prepared to put forth effort to meet people in their difficulty rather than skirt around it. So, you see, a true friend is someone who who actually puts themselves out. Say, walks the extra mile, if you like, for your sake. Comes over to you, for your sake. Mm. Patiently bears with. 
reveals what's happening for them and doesn't disclose your secrets, your pains, your, your intimacy to other people. So it protects you in that way, nourishes you and protects you. Even when you've completely lost it altogether. And to, to certainly to be able to you know, reflect on that, can I do that for anyone? Can anyone do that for me? Do I live in a way whereby that there's a possibility that's going to happen, that there, there will be friends? You find these, these occasions in, in modern Western life where people are tr- tr- you know, writing to, to organizations to find a friend. You, know, you go to a computer, put your name in and give it to some computer agency which will give your details out on the <coughs> internet and will locate a friend for you. Yeah. Or you see in the, the small ads in, in magazines, you know, aging monk, 53 years old. <laughs> <laughs> Someone shares interest in, in uh, black chocolate and uh, <laughs> sitting up all night, you know. I think this is, I mean, it just shows how much is needed. You think, oh, sad that people have to do that, you know, and go like that. Well, something that I've, I've probably mentioned before on occasion, but it still strikes me as, as very poignant. Uh, I read an article in the newspaper about a, a woman who's a professional mourner, and she goes to the funerals of people who have no one to mourn them. In just in London. So there's people who die alone, nobody knows them, they don't have any friends at all, relatives, nobody's even going to stand by their coffin. And she, she, she does it. Which is a thousand people a month dying alone without a friend. You know, this is really pretty tough because if they died alone, what did they, you know, what did they live like? And we often find in big cities where there's millions of people, people are still shockingly alone. It's not that there's no other human beings around, but the possibility of really, you know, finding someone you can relax with, trust with, who's going to carry your weight for you, who (coughs) you can feel you can disclose secrets to, who's going to be there for you, who's going to put a little bit of effort to come over and give you a hand. Wow. Where's that? You know. Mm. And so why is that? Is it people don't want to be friends? Is it that people don't understand what it's about? Everybody wants a friend. Why can't we just be friends with each other? See the sense of because there's not enough safety. Mm. So, you know. Very often it just comes down to in order to be a friend and have a friend, you have to be someone who keeps precepts, understands that, and there are enough people around who do that. Are you going to make friends with somebody who drinks all the time? Are you going to disclose your secrets to someone who drinks all the time? Yeah. Are you going to let someone you know, look after your house who's, who's, who's a bit light-fingered? 
you know, or sc- who spends your money on, on gambles, or you know, you're not, are you? And when you look around, you see that really the absence of friendship is not just an absence of sentiment, but an absence of real, you know, steady moral values that make it safe, make it okay to be with each other. I mean, that's part of it, obviously. And then if it's like that, if you, you know, if there is that, then you may not really, you know, be that sort of, sort of, you know, what do you call it? People have a lot of differences of character. Some people you, you just find yourself naturally have a lot of things in common with or you're naturally attracted to other people. You're just, mm, fine, it's okay. But that's, that's a kind of specialization of it, isn't it? You know? It's like uh, you can have different degrees of, of emotional vigor that goes on with that. But the sense of just being in a place where you feel there is support and lack of harm and there's people you could ask a favor of. And I think that's, that's a, to me, is a very important um, measure. Is there anyone I could ask a favor of? If it's just like, could you hold the door open? Or could you bring me a chair? Or could you, par- you know, excuse me, could you pass me my shoes? Things just that you feel you can, you can ask favors of, without feeling you know it's not okay to ask a favor of. It's getting in somebody's way. It's intruding. It's being a burden or being a nuisance to do that. And all these, you know, attitudes that get, we get encrusted with that stop us being open, easy, flexible, trusting, and and companionable with each other. Now, as much as the precepts and what comes out of that, because when you keep precepts yourself, you become safe to yourself. This is something I've been thinking about recently. It's like if if you don't have that sense of your own values and your own restraint, your own sense of clarity and self-discipline, where you, you're not really safe to yourself. You don't even know when you're going to lose it or blow it, you know, or, or, or you're caught in some addiction or another. Then you don't feel safe with yourself. And you're not, you know. So it's certainly these are things that we have to look at both in terms of our behavior and in terms of our own uh, inner cultivation of mind and heart. Am I a friend to myself? Do I protect myself? Do I take care to protect myself from things that they're easy to fall into, from seductive influences, from um, intoxication, from addictions, from compulsions, from negligence, from ignorance, from abusiveness? Do I really realize this is this stuff is around this kind of these possibilities are definitely around for us do I protect myself from that and do I nourish myself do I give myself enough good food that I don't I'm not someone who's who needs lots of things you know because so, so much of the corruption occurs because people's loneliness or lack of joy you know, can only be met through particular forms of behavior. 
drinking, for example, is a very easy and a socially acceptable way to feel an easy sense of intimacy. You know, you can kind of get into this kind of maudlin, mushy mood with it, sing and dance and, you know, grab somebody around the shoulder. then we wouldn't bother. So it's, it's recognizing this our system has particular needs for both for nourishment and for safety. We need to feel we've got a place, a quiet place, a calm place, an okay place where we're not going to be jumped on or got at. And we need to feel there's ways in which we can get what I call food, which I don't just mean physical food, I mean food for the heart. We can get warmth, we can get love, we can get clarity, we can get some peace, we can get that. And these are things that really you begin to recognize feed, feed us. And you can't override this. You can't go without. You, know. you can go without for a little bit. And most of us you know, gradually mutate into camels after a while. Camels and cactuses. <laughs> you learn to just kind of grimly struggle along until the next rain comes, you know. But still, eventually, you know, you've got you've to get some victuals, you've got to get some water, you've got to get some food somewhere. You know. Otherwise, the system just does not survive. You just get hard and grim and functional. Uh, and uh, without that, then you don't really have a way of, of meditating. Because meditation is about as a skill, it's not supposed to be an onerous duty that we do. It's another work project where you've got to concentrate on some kind of you know, grim duty that you have to do every day. But it's a way of getting in touch with yourself, getting in touch with your good place. First aspect of meditation, samatha, is about just finding your good place. You know, your good place, your good room, your good moment of the day a good bit of your heart, the, the nice feeling in your body, the satisfying rhythm, the pleasant ambience, whatever it is, you know, and it's getting there and drinking it in. You could be breathing, you could be looking at a picture, you could be chanting, you could be walking along, you know, there are many ways you can do that. And just drink, you're really drinking that in, so you feel, begin to feel, system starts to come out of its dry or contracted or tense state. This is really important in meditation. It's not supposed to be another hot bit of hard work. It's supposed to be a time when you, you drink in your nourishment. And, and so the Buddha says, you know, until the mind feels rich, pliable, malleable, workable, soft, fit, capable, competent, fit to do some work. And we all know work. And we all believe in work. We all, as soon as somebody says work, we all believe in it, don't we? We think this is an important thing for human beings to do, is work. You know? And you are valued by how well you can work, and you've got a good job, and you do your work properly, and you've done enough work, so now you've done enough work, you deserve what you worked hard for all your life. <laughs> and we would say, yes, I understand that. You know? But wh wh what is this stuff? You know? What do we work? 
I mean, it's just like a, a function of getting enough requisites. You know, doing something so you get enough food and shelter and clothes on your back and medicines and a little bit spare to give away or to, to do something you know, for a rainy day with. That's what it's for. You know, it's there to give you nourishment. But so often it becomes a kind of cause in its own right to show that you're as good as the next person because you work. It becomes the work ethic. So that we sometimes only feel we get so we only feel okay if we're doing a lot of work. Certainly, I know, you know, in my own family, my grandfather, he died through overwork. My father died through overwork. My brother is killing himself through overwork. <laughs> I, and I, I know what it feels like, you know, even as a Buddhist monk, even in this situation. You know, something feels like it's the right thing to do. Sacrifice, work hard, and, you know, produce good... Why? It's supposed to be about nourishing yourself, providing well-being, not as some kind of thing that is a sign of being worthy of being here, which is what it turns (coughs) up to be, doesn't it? You know, you're allowed to be on the planet because you do a good job. (laughs) You're a deserving human being because you do a good job and you work hard doesn't matter about the stress, the rupture, the pills you have to take at night because you did a good job. So I got, you know, these two generations, I don't well, know my grand, great-grandfather, I suspect he did the same. <laughs> of that kind of thing. But, you know, just realising your own, your your sense of what we mean by work is that sense of putting forth effort. You know, bringing forth a bit more effort and pushing back a boundary or cleaning something up or tidying something up or straightening something. You can't do that without food. You need nourishment. You need energy for the way. You need physical energy. You also need heart energy. You need the sense of cheer love, joy, aspiration, feeling this is meaningful for me, this is what I want to be with, whether it works or not, this is what's right for me, then, you know, yeah, you can do it. And so often it seems we actually put forth effort and there's no real energy there. There's no real heart in it. So, when you do this, you're not a friend to yourself anymore. You're not not a friend to yourself, you're not providing for yourself, you're not protecting yourself. This is really important to get across. There's nothing, there's no reward that can satisfy, you know, it's not like you if you if you if you w- if you come from that attitude thinking you, you know you get a reward that will make it you'll make it all all right, it doesn't. You can't damage yourself and be given a banana and make it be that makes it all right. If you, you know, there's no reward that, that compensates for the, the damage that you can do yourself if you don't if you're not a friend to yourself. And a friend to you, being a friend to yourself means when I'm you know when I fail when I don't get it right, when I make a mistake, I'm a friend to myself. 
but I can't quite make it. I'm a friend to myself. In, in uh, teaching meditation and in talking with people about meditation, you know, over, over years, I recognize how many people savage themselves over meditation. You know, beat themselves up over the state of their minds. I'm not peaceful enough. I'm so angry. I'm so grumpy. I'm so depressed. I'm so this, that, and the other. You know, so, the, the, you know, so they're already sick with, with diseases like anger and guilt and fear and depression. They've already got sickness. So then, feeling sick, they then bash themselves around a bit more. You know. Like, oh, the, oh, you know the patient who's terminally ill on, on Ward 3? Yeah? We go and give him a good kicking. <laughs> that would have, you know, tell him to shape up and get, in, get it together. <laughs> you wouldn't do that to another person, but we can do that to ourselves. And when you realize like, what, what all of us have to bear with in this, in this life, well, we have this, this will to be, which is continually getting checked and frustrated. All of us have a certain degree of anger. And that anger can be something like a, just a kind of casual grumpiness or snappiness or, you know, tetchiness. It doesn't, don't we're flaming with it. There's a kind of snappiness or there's a certain tension there of, of anger. You know, I call it anger. It's a big word, but it's something we all have. Sometimes it gets very hot and sometimes it goes down to just a, a grumpy, grudgy kind of state. And all of us have a certain amount of, of uh, sadness or grief or disappointment. It can be go down to depression. Or it could be just, oh well, life's, it could be go to resignation. Resignation is a kind of s- tolerable form of depression. Well, life's not like not much. I'm not much good anyway. Just put up with it. Mustn't grumble. Yeah, this is this is anaesthetized grief. Mustn't grumble. Yeah. And a lot of people have anxiety. Yeah. What am I going to do? What will I be? Who's going to look after me when I get old? Who's going to laugh? What, what's going to happen when I get sick? You know, these. Oh, don't think about it right now. 